Heinleiners. Yep, you heard that correct. We grok you, and I've got my water brother, Mark Conlon, here to talk about Stranger in a Strange Land. Mark, can you introduce yourself to the folks out there in Dickhead's Land? Okay, Mark Gabrish Conlon, uh, fan of science fiction and mysteries and uh, old movies and uh, uh, quite a lot of music. Uh, my tastes run from opera to a lot of the early punk and uh, everything in between. Yeah, and I know Mark from uh, back in the day. Uh, he used to do uh, um, a self-published uh, political journal called Zangers. So, uh, you know, just uh, it was really important to our community for a long time. So you may remember Mark from our Journal of the Plague Years Spin Ratters special. And uh, so he's, he's as much of a nerd for all things science fiction and literature as we are, so we're very glad to have him back here for Stranger in a Strange Land. So, on that note, uh, this is a continuing uh, bonus episode in our Hugo Award-winning series from the 60s, uh, which we kicked off by doing Starship Troopers with our April Fool's Day Heinleiners. Hey, David. Yeah. Can you say Hugo Award winners of the 1960s? Oh, Sorry. The Hugo Award winners for Best Novel from the 1960s. There you go. Um, <laughs> so, Stranger in a Strange Land was the winner in 1962, uh, two years after Heinlein won for Starship Troopers. So, this was, uh, they, this is the second of three books that Heinlein won. Uh, the big prize for in the 60s, and the third was Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which we'll be recording later. But tonight, we're going to talk about Stranger in a Strangeland, which came out in 1961. Mark, what was happening in the world in 1961? Uh, well, it was the year that uh, President John F. Kennedy was inaugurated and uh, promptly got himself into a foreign policy disaster with the CIA's attempted invasion of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs, which uh, disillusioned a lot of people who had thought he represented uh, something uh, fundamentally different from the presidents of the past. It was also the year the Berlin Wall went up. It was uh, the year when uh, the music charts were dominated by uh, Chubby Checker and the Twist, though that <laughs> might have been a year later. Uh, I'm not sure. And uh, it was... It was actually a pretty trivial era in uh, pop music, and uh, yeah, well, I'm not sure what we were doing in movies around that time, but uh, you know, the, but I think this is really good context, and I always like to talk about what was going on in the world because I think once we get into the social political themes of this novel, it's really interesting to, to think about what the world was like in 1961. Certainly, the number one movie of that year was West Side Story, and it was the Academy Award winner of the year. Stranger in a Strange Land was the Hugo winner. Ah, off the top of your head. Good job, Mark. Um, yeah, West Side Story, which is soon to be remade by Steven Spielberg. I don't know if you... I know, I don't want to get into Spielcast, which we... Uh, for some reason, we always end up talking about Steven Spielberg on Dickheads. As um, long as the leads can sing, I'll be okay with it. Yeah, I'm not... I don't know that. I don't know anything about that. I'm not a musical guy, so I don't know what to make of that. But let's talk about the writing and publication history of Stranger in a Strange Land, which, um, as you noted before we started recording, 
Uh, for a guy who considers himself agnostic, this is one of two titles that have bl- biblical reference, right? And I believe the other one was Job. Was I was the, thinking of I Will Fear No Evil. So we got three, at least, because Job was kind of... Uh, I mean, that's definitely a, a biblical reference, but Fear No Evil is another one. So yeah, uh, for so you know, he... But the original title, by the way, that the working title that he went with was The Heretic. However, he did play around with the name A Martian Named Smith and The Man from Mars. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I think Stranger in a Strange Land is definitely the best title of those. Um, the Heretic, um, I know it really, it does explain what's going on, but it's, I don't think it's a great title. And, um, A Martian Named Smith, uh, is a little on the nose, but uh, I don't know. How do you feel about the title, Mark? Well, I think it's a great title. It's uh, you know expressive of the fact that the central character is alienated from his Earth origins, but he's also alienating the Earth people who are trying to work with him and teach him how uh, we live on this planet. Yeah, and he was also born a stranger on Mars because he's uh, well. Yeah, we'll get into the into more of the plot stuff in a little bit. Now, uh, specifically, uh, Heinlein got the idea over ten years before um, before he ended up writing. I believe nineteen forty eight is when he. As the story goes, that he and his wife Virginia were brainstorming different ideas because you know I'm sure they were trying to think. Um, we got to make some money here around this house. Like, what can you come up with, Robert? Um, and she suggested that they do a sci-fi version of Kipling's The Jungle Book, um, which obviously was from the century before. And uh, although popularized by a Disney movie, um, it was, of course, a beloved book. And I think the idea was... To to write a story about a human child raised by aliens, specifically Martians, um, which is funny because um, the novel that we end up with doesn't really... That is a part of the story, but it is not the story. In fact, Stranger to Strange Land basically begins where the Jungle Book ends, with the central character's reintroduction to human society, and... Uh, I remember my husband Charles saying that uh, he thought there was a strong parallel between Stranger in a Strange Land and the first Edgar Rice Burroughs Tarzan. Mm, which, yeah, because uh, he ends up going back to civilization. And, and you know, they, you know, Burroughs may have been ripping off Kipling as well. And uh, But the idea goes back to the founding legend of Rome with Romulus and Remus being raised by wolves and uh, probably even farther than that. Mm-hmm. Right, and I, I'm sure there's there's probably all kinds of different uh, literary influences that are throughout this, and I'm sure when we start discussing the story, we'll see more of those. I hadn't thought about the Romulus and Remus one, but that's, that's really good. Of course, when I think of Romulus and Remus in my generation, I think of the G.I. Joe characters. Uh, <laughs> but I'm showing my age right there. Um, anyways... <laughs> Um, at the publisher's request, he he turned it in um, at a very thick length, and about 60,000 words, 25% of the book was chopped out. Now, however, this is going to make one interesting thing about the way we're doing this podcast is that um, we both bought the book at the same bookstore, <laughs> uh, used bookstore in San Diego. Shout out to Verbatim Books and Justine. 
um, who just recently expanded, and the bookstore looks amazing. Um, and there are two versions there. There was the 1969 um, mass market paperback shortened version, which I bought, and then a couple days later, Mark swooped in and bought the um, unabridged, much thicker version of Stranger in a Strangeland that was released in 1991 uncut. Um, so... That's about 60,000 words were removed between the version Mark read and the version that I read. So they're going to be slightly different takes. And But I think mostly Heinlein said that the story uh, didn't change much. It was mostly a lot of verbose language and so on and so forth is, is, what, is what most of the research I've done is. But I've only read the short version. So And Heinlein left contradictory messages as to which version he preferred. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because there's times where he definitely, you know... And how about that? Heinlein being contradictory. <laughs> I can't imagine that. <laughs> um, you know, all these sci-fi guys from that era, I don't know that there's anybody who is, like, super, super consistent. Like, I don't know. Maybe, I, I don't know. Maybe Clark. Maybe Asimov. I don't know. I don't know if I'd go that far. But anyways... Uh, so, the critics disagree a little bit, too, on which version is preferred. I think most people consider the shorter version to be um, the superior edit. However, um, there's definitely um, split opinions on that. I've uh, heard contradictory signals from my friends. One person who actually read both of them about 20 years ago said that he thought that the original version was simply a first draft and that uh, even if Heinlein hadn't been forced by his publisher to cut it that radically, he would still have made a lot of revisions before he submitted it for publication. Well, that's interesting because I do have a quote from Heinlein here. Um, and he says, Stranger in a Strange Land was never censored by anyone in any fashion. The first draft was nearly twice as long as the published version. I cut it myself to bring it down to commercial length. But I did not leave out anything of any importance. I simply trimmed the possible excess verbiage. Perhaps you've noticed that it reads fast despite its length. That is why. The original longest version of Stranger in a Strange Land is not really worth your trouble. As it is the same story throughout, simply not told as well. Um, and then he goes on to say some other things, but I think that's basically the, the key there. Uh, so, yeah, he definitely... And I know there was other times where... There was another quote where he said um, that he described it as being telegraphies. Yeah, he had, yeah. that was the uh, quote that his wife uh, put in the um, preface to the long version justifying her decision to publish it. Right. So he might have told her one thing and then told... Uh, the friend that he wrote the letter you were quoting to uh, a decade later mm -hmm. told him something else. Right, and that was a letter to his literary agent, uh, Lurton Blazingame, which is a great name. <laughs> Lurton? <laughs> I've never heard of anyone named Lurton. That's a Philip K. Dick character name. <laughs> um, but he said, um, in that letter he said, if I cut out religion and sex... I'm very much afraid that I will end up with a non-alcoholic martini. 
He continued to say in the letter... Well, if you cut out religion and sex from Stranger to Strange Land, you'd end up with a short story. Yeah, or you'd end up with something that was pretty pointless. <laughs> There's not much going on there. So um, the story is supposed to be completely a... Oh, this is what he said. Highland continued. The story is supposed to be a completely freewheeling look at contemporary human culture from the non-human viewpoint of the man on Mars in the sense of the philosophical cliché. No sacred cows of any sort. In addition to a double dozen of minor satirical slants, the two major things which I am attacking are the biggest, fattest, sacred cows of all. Two that every writer is supposed to give at least lip service to the illicit assumptions of our Western culture concerning religion and sex. So, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, this idea that the novel is attacking sacred cows, I, I would say that that is definitely a huge part of why it became like kind of this cult phenomenon is because I think the novel, um, well, put it in the context of 1961 or 1960 when he's writing it, I mean, th this is way, this is way early to be making those kinds of points and messages. And where it might seem quaint 60 years later, or however long, or 50 years, 60 years later, um, but it was pretty, pretty hardcore at the time to question these things. Um, I don't know, was there any, I, I can't think of anything that was in mass media at the time that was really dealing with these issues, right? Nothing that had been a bestseller, for sure. Yeah, it was an interesting thing, you know, um, it was, for one thing, it was Robert Heinlein's attempt after he had built up a reputation for short stories and what would now be called young adult novels to present himself on a larger canvas, as it were, and to say, I am a writer. I am a literateur. I have serious things to say mm -hmm. that I can't just get into a pulp story or a YA novel. Yeah. And I've seen some assertions that, that, Heinlein was being revolutionary by putting sex into science fiction, but he was not the first. Um, I think a lot of people give that attention to Philip Jose Farmer for his novel, The Lovers, right? Um, as being like kind of the first like hardcore sex sci-fi novel. And then a couple of years later, you're going to have the, the new wave. You're going to have your John Bruners, your Philip K. Dick, your, you know, um, your Le Guin's that are, are really going to like, break it all open with books like Dangerous Visions and stuff like that. So, I mean, he was early in this, but I wouldn't say he was the first. And um, it was a change in the overall culture that, uh, sure. you know, mainstream novels were coming out. Um, uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover uh, was published in 1959, uh, 31 years after it was written. Mm -hmm. um, you had the controversies over Lolita. Uh, you had a lot of you know, non-genre books that were also breaking down some of the sexual barriers and... Uh, in fiction in general. In fiction time. in general. And also um, the pushback against the production code in movies, the fact that uh, audiences in America were uh, developing a taste for foreign films. Fellini's La Dolce Vita was a box office hit in 1960. And it was a movie that introduced a lot of U.S. audiences to the greater freedom that foreign filmmakers, not bound by the production code, had had to deal with sex. 
Right, and and so and I'm not downplaying that Stranger in Strangeland was doing revolutionary things with with the form in science fiction because I believe that he was, and there's it's a masterpiece for a reason, or considered a masterpiece for a reason. And I think that a lot of the ways that it it, it broke these barriers were really important. So even if it was happening in in, in other genres and mass literature, I still think it's important that Heinlein was doing it here. But I think also what you were saying about the fact that he had a reputation for writing these juvenile novels like Have Spaceship Will Travel and and, and, and a lot of the... Um, and the Rolling yeah. Stones, which I have a particular affection for because uh, the Martian flat cats were the source of the dribbles. Oh, okay. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And but actually, the, David Gerald, the author of The Trouble with Dribbles, admitted it. Yeah, I got yeah. it from Robert Heinlein and the Martian flat cats. Yeah, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, and he had, he, you're, you were definitely right. He had wanted to break away from the, the YA stuff. And and he was working on Stranger in a Strange Land before he wrote Starship Troopers, which is kind of an interesting thing, because I do remember when we did our Starship Troopers episode, he had started Stranger in a Strange Land, and then he had the whole instance where he saw the anti-nuclear ad that pissed him off enough to go and write Starship Troopers. So he... he halted Stranger in a Strange Land to write Starship Troopers, which, as much as we talked about it earlier, that it's interesting that he followed up the publication of Starship Troopers. He really wrote Starship Troopers in the middle of writing Stranger in a Strange Land. Now, wrap your head around that politically. Although, you know, it did occur to me when I got to the end of Stranger in a Strange Land and read the trick ending that he supplied... Mm-hmm. That one could readily imagine a Stranger in a Strange Land sequel in which the Earth has to organize a star, star strip troopers like force to prevent itself from being destroyed by Mars. Being turned into another uh, asteroid belt. <laughs> yeah. <Right. laughs> and, uh, yeah, spoilers. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we assume you've read the book or, or don't care uh, about spoilers <laughs> at this point. Um, here's one thing that's really interesting. Now, you were talking about, like, the proof about the whole thing that he wanted to be a serious writer was that I saw a quote where he didn't, he, um, well, it's like that whole thing, like, we see in punk rock all the time that people are like, oh, this is my serious rock record. I'm no longer a punk rocker or whatever. Uh, And you definitely see filmmakers doing this. Highland did that with with Stranger in Strangeland. There were times where he referred to it as not being science fiction at all. And he referred to it as, quote, a sociopolitical satire of sex and religion in contemporary culture. Try putting that on the spine of a book. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I get it. It is a sociopolitical satire of sex and religion in contemporary culture, but it's also a science fiction novel because, I'm sorry, my dude, you got Martians in it, and you got asteroids, you know, um, people traveling back and forth between here and Mars. Uh, like, it's it's a science fiction novel. So, <laughs> And you got psychic people, and you got, like, all kinds of other stuff going on. And you've got, you've got spaceships going back and forth. You've got this book coming out the year that people are finally getting into space. Right, right. And, and, um... You know, just in the same way, I would say, like, uh, you know, most of the books that some people say are not science fiction by Kurt Vonnegut are definitely science fiction. Slaughterhouse-Five is science fiction. 
Cat's Cradle is science fiction. Um, and definitely Sirens the Titan, all, all those, they're science fiction. And, uh, and in this case too, um, you know, Highland can put all these lofty things on top of it, but in the end, uh, Stranger in Strangeland is a science fiction novel. And certainly so. people had been writing science fiction social commentary, you know, at least since H.G. Wells, arguably since Jonathan Swift. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the whole history of it. I mean, and that's the thing is there's very little science fiction that, that can't in some way um, be considered social commentary at all. Like, all of it. Um, you know, especially in the early days, too, when you've got even Frankenstein as social commentary, right? Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of people consider that to be, like, one of the first, like, real true science fiction novels, I, you know. Yes, like, I've had that argument with some friends, you know, saying, you know, well, who's who's the important, first important woman science fiction writer? Well, of course, it's Mary Shelley, duh. Yeah. Oh, so it absolutely is. And so, you know, the, the, the history of social commentary there is it's always been there. It's always been a part of it. And, um, Heinlein needs, you know, he, uh, you know, I get it. I get why he wants to kind of distance himself from that, but it's, it's fucking science fiction, you know? And like, one of the things about Stranger in a Strange Land that struck me, it was, you know, it's been one of those books that I never got around to reading until, uh, David asked me to do this podcast, uh, and discovering that there was a longer version and that was the copy available to me, uh, put an interesting spin on it because one of the weaknesses, and maybe this was the main source of the cuts, is just how often Heinlein gets on his soapbox. The character of Jubal Kershaw is obviously Heinlein's avatar in the book. Mm-hmm. But the lectures don't just come from him. They come from all sorts of other characters. And as the thing went on, I was having to look back saying, okay, which character is delivering Heinlein's diatribe now? <laughs> right. Which, you know, is a thing that, um, I guess, I mean, there's diatribes in Starship Troopers, which is a super thin book, but, um, you know, he did it in a very kind of sly and, and very thin way. Although, I'm not going to say that Starship Troopers was sly because the points, I mean, he made the points with a hammer to your face. Um, but, you know, we'll get more into the impact of the story. Let's talk about the impact of this novel for a little bit, and then we'll get we'll we'll start reviewing the story and talk more about the actual story. Um, in 2012, the U.S. Library of Congress named it one of 88 books that shaped America. That's pretty high praise for any book, let alone a science fiction book. Um, I'm not sure how many science fiction books are on that list entirely, but I doubt there's many. Um, I, I bet there's probably some Vonnegut, maybe, uh, maybe a Slaughterhouse-Five on there. I, I didn't look at the whole list, but I think that's a really great honor, and it says something about, um, Stranger in a Strange Land. Um, I also, you know, the fact that it was nominated for the Hugo, we'll, we'll get back to that in a little bit. We'll look at some of the other things that were nominated in that year, but um, it was also the first science fiction novel to make it to the New York Times bestseller list, which um, which means it was reaching an audience beyond the science fiction fan group, right? And one of the interesting things that happened with uh, this book is that a St. Louis native named Timothy Zell 
created the church of all worlds adopting the whole belief system of this book and made a real neo-pagan church legally recognized here in the state of California, which he says is used to promote philosophical tolerance, polygamy, the tenets of both socialism and libertarianism. And uh, just for the record, Heinlein never joined the Church of All Worlds. Um, I would have been quite surprised if he had. Right. So um, I don't think it's ever as successful as L. Ron Hubbard's uh, religious... <laughs> Um, leanings, yeah. but as to far- talk about a contemporary of Heinlein's who started out as a pulp writer and then turned to creating a religion, uh, but he and whose he, script- he actually did it himself. Yes, and who the uh, the scriptures of Scientology, um, the the works that Hubbard wrote as the scriptures of Scientology bear an interesting uh, and striking resemblance to the works he offered in the commercial marketplace as science fiction. Right, it, you know, and so. It's funny because, like, all the, because these guys were contemporaries and Hubbard and Heinlein were friends. And so there's lots of really good stories in the book Astounding that came out this last year. Which, and there is a brief mention of Scientology in Stranger. That's right. And, um, so it, it's not that they're ignoring this because, um, it's definitely there in, um, in this book. But what I guess I, I want to say about, yeah, it's goofy that there's this real-life, allegedly, religion. I don't know how serious anyone really takes it. But this book had a huge in- cultural impact because um, people, not only did um, the Webster's Dictionary added a word to the dictionary with grok, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so a word was created. Not only that. But a lot of people were using this as a basis of their kind of like free love kind of ideals. But I don't know how much of that is on Highlanders. It was just in the zeitgeist at the time. I I wasn't alive in the 60s. So, you know, I wasn't born until 1974. So I I don't remember this stuff. But from what I've read, uh, it just kind of seems like it was zeitgeist more than it was influenced. But I don't know. I I don't know what you think. I was alive in the 60s. And... um... I think uh, it was a book that uh, a lot of people who considered themselves hippies seized on as, you know, sort of uh, a way station on what they were working out. And it's really uh, the book of the Stranger in a Strange Land's uh, philosophy is really very much a man's version of sexual liberation that uh, in the late 60s – the people who thought they were rejecting the, you know, straight, back when that meant unhip and not ungay, uh, community and its sexual values, um, were creating a value system that objectified women just as much as the straight world did. And, um. There's a shit ton of misogyny in this yeah, book. Yeah, the. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me is that. Just when I would think that Heinlein was actually creating a powerful woman character with agency of her own, he would throw in some nasty little sexist crack about her or give her a vulnerability that kind of tapped you on the shoulder and said, you know, yeah, this is still a man of his time with, uh, you know, all the, uh, vices inherent there too, including how he felt about women. 
and, and there's straight up a line in there where he talks about women uh, being responsible or to blame for why they were raped. Um, like is is in this text. It's like you can cannot not notice it. I mean, it's just like it's, it's like the record scratch when you're reading. Um, you know, which was was one of the most awful parts, uh, or one of the hardest parts of the book for me. But you know, it, it, there's a lot of misogyny in this book. Like here I mean, there. at one point, like, he actually sounds like the, you know, that uh, Republican congressman who said that women couldn't get pregnant from rape because their bodies had a way of shutting it down. Right. And and I think that's one of the hardest things about this book for me is, is this, you know, oh, we'll, we'll get more into that later when we get more into the book. Let's let's continue to talk about the impact. Here's the funny thing for me. OK, this is hilarious. Okay, back to a funny note, since we got all depressing for a second. Um, you talked about the fact that hippies glommed onto this book. <laughs> I had to annoy the shit out of Heinlein. Because here's a guy who just finished winning, or just won an award two years earlier for a book that was his big middle finger to the anti-war, the anti-nuke, like, hippie people. Like, and then he writes a book that they're all about <laughs> two years later. Um, and that shows you just like the whole confusing thing about like, what, what is Heinlein thinking? Is he a right winger? Is he, you know, I know he considered himself a libertarian, right? But there's right wing libertarians. Robert A. Heinlein, you know. <laughs> is a prime example. And I think that's why you have this book that can be, you have two years separated. You have a book that could be like a total, like, you know, yay, raw right wing. And then you have this book that hippies would be like, dude, stranger in strange land. I grok you, man. You know, like <laughs> there, it's just such a weird dichotomy that just two years separating. And the fact that we know just because we, from the research, that he wrote half a stranger in a strange land, wrote troopers, and came back to it. You know, so that it was like, basically he was writing it at the same time. Yeah, That's and super fucking weird. It's one of the things. <laughs> it's one of the things that kind of put me off of trying to crack Heinlein's big novels because you know I've been appalled by the politics of his short stories and his short novels, mm-hmm. and it's like okay, you know, yeah. When I, you know, Starship Troopers reminds me of a remark my mom made when the film Patton came out, that she was a heavy-duty anti-war uh, civil rights uh, activist. But uh, she said, well, you know, if we were ever invaded by an alien race from another planet, I'd want a guy like Patton leading the <laughs> army. And that's basically the message of Starship Troopers, that we need guys like Patton because aliens are going to invade and we need to defend ourselves. Well, right. Well, and his original inspiration for writing Starship Troopers was that he saw a, a billboard, right, um, that was anti-nuclear weapons, and he was horrified. And so he went and he's like, I'm going to show them pacifists a thing or two. And he gave a speech at the Naval Academy, like, years later that was, like, dripping with, you know, <laughs> this crypto-fascist, you know, like, super yay rah, pro-military thing, um, to which if you go back and listen to our Starship Troopers episode, you can hear Anthony, like, basically blow his top about it. Because here's the thing. 
And I agree, I agree with him. Like, I didn't like the politics of that, but one of the things that was funny is because with Starship Troopers, I was able to kind of separate what I disagreed and said, I think this is a really good science fiction novel, even though I don't agree with it. But here's my problem with Starship Troopers, and I may be getting ahead of myself a little bit. I mean, with Stranger in Strangeland, is that I'm not sure there's a good science fiction novel here. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure what to feel about like what he's saying in it either. And I guess that's kind of the segue to talking about what happens in the story. So let's talk about what happens in the story. Because that was one of the things that struck me, is that compared to the Jungle Book, which he cited as his inspiration, mm-hmm. we really get nothing about what Valentine Michael Smith's life was like on Mars. Now, that I actually liked. Now, it's interesting, because I'm not sure if everyone who read this book is going to enjoy that, but I liked the mystery of the fact that we didn't know a lot about the Martians. Now, you're right, that that makes it totally different from Jungle Book, um, <laughs> which was their inspiration, but I like that the Martians are mysterious, that we don't know what they are, that they are this kind of, like, weird, crazy other, and I think that makes the Martians a little bit more intimidating in the kind of off-camera kind of thing that's going on with that. Yeah, certainly a valid artistic choice on his part. Right. So I appreciated that. Um, and so the story the story goes uh, that there's a, a manned mission to Mars, and 20, 20 years later, it takes 20 years before we go back there. And between that time, we've had World War Three, right? And we have a consolidation of political power with Europe and the United States into one, which I recently, there was another science fiction novel we read. Oh, The Simulacra. <laughs> the most recent episode of Dickheads that we've just recorded where the exact same thing happens in The Simulacra. So I think a lot of people were thinking that there must be some kind of sci-fi zeitgeist at the time that people are thinking about the idea of Europe and the U.S. combining into one kind of block. Which isn't and, that hard to believe with NATO. And in Heimline, it goes back to um, what I think is, despite my problem with its politics as well, the you know my favorite uh, piece of writing of his, the 1940s short story Solution Unsatisfactory, mm-hmm. in which he basically comes right out and says that the only way humankind can survive the invention of nuclear weapons is via a world government led by a benevolent dictator. Yeah. Yikes. Well, and you know, that's one of And the reason he calls it solution unsatisfactory is at the very end he reveals that even the benevolent dictator himself is unhappy about that. Right. Well okay, so you got this idea of the he he has all these weird concepts of political power that are kind of glossed over here in, in Stranger Things. They're, they're in the background. They're the world building, which I'm fine with, right? But they are pretty heavy-handed if you really think about it. Even though they go by really quickly, there's a lot of really heavy ideas about World War III that are are kind of peppered in there and really, really good world building. So I would say as far as artistic choices, I think the world building is done really well in the first part of the book. I don't know. Do you agree with me on that on the world building? Yeah, I think or? so. Yeah. And so 
So early on, and and this might be the difference between the two versions that we read, because for me, the, those parts go really quickly um, in 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 the 1969 version that I read. And so the Mars mission happens, and they go. The second mission happens, and they go back, and and the first astronauts they died. Um, see, Larry, I need you to to do story recap here because I'm not used to doing this. So. They died on Mars, and <laughs> they send another mission, and lo and behold... And Highland's misogyny comes out because the first mission is gender mixed, and the second mission is all male. And right. he seems to be attributing the failure of the first mission to the gender mixing. Right, because it's like, well, we, didn't w- we wanted to send couples because we thought that, that would work out better, but something went wrong! <laughs> right, and... Uh, so, but one thing that he had to have gender mixing there for the plot, right? So because plot. And he puts um, in that Valentine Michael Smith is the result of an adulterous relationship between two of the people, uh, between a man and a woman on the original crew, other than the ones they were married to. Right. And so we don't know much about how they found him, where they found him, all that stuff. Again, I like that. But they bring him back to Earth. And so that begins the kind of fish out of water part of the novel, which I liked that part. Um, and I liked, cause basically Michael Valentine comes back and, and to earth and he has to learn language. He has to learn what people are. And he knows a little bit because he has Martian customs and those things that, you know, are so alien that, you know, like the whole water bonding and all that stuff, which is, you know, which makes sense because Mars is a planet. It's not going to have a shit ton of water. So water is going to be really important to their spirituality. Probably. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes is the one where uh, Jill wants to give him a bath and he's shocked that she actually wants him to get into this huge tub of water that he's, that she's filled for him. Right. And that was a great world building moment. And but here's the thing about this part of the book. I found myself during this part thinking, and I'm not sure I held this up the whole way, but there was one movie that I kept thinking about during that first half and saying, "Ooh, this is going to be sacrilege," and a lot of people are going to be be like, "What?" But I almost felt in the first half that Starman, the John Carpenter movie, was a better version of this part of the story. Because and I love, I grew up on Starman, so I could. Be partial to it for that reason. But I didn't read Stranger in a Strange Land. The first time I read Stranger in a Strange Land was when I was in college, like 25 years ago. I don't think I was um, grown up enough to get some of the things that were being presented in this book. But I can tell you that that was my reaction the first time was, well, this is like a like lame version of Starman. <laughs> um, have you ever seen the John Carpenter movie Starman? No, although I've seen enough Carpenter movies that uh, he's on my list of favorite directors, and I've you know I've raised a lot of eyebrows by saying that in the 1991 film They Live, John Carpenter did The Matrix and got more out of that plot premise than the Wachowskis could do in three longer movies. Well, I'm going to agree with you on, on that, except for I'm going to nerd check you and say that that um, They Live came out uh, much earlier than 1991. It was, I believe, 86 or 87. But okay, I think 91 might have been when I saw it. But right, well, <laughs> and it's I also, okay. I'm, I'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm nerd checking you because uh, um, and I also I, like his version of the thing better than the original. 
Well, I think that's uh, that's not even a debate. Um, it's definitely the better version. But if you've never seen... Now, Starman is an important movie for John Carpenter because it's the only time one of his actors got nominated for Best Actor. And it was Jeff Bridges playing basically the Michael Valentine Smith role um, in in that movie. Now, Starman is more of a romantic comedy, right? It doesn't have quite... Well, it does have social commentary. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I almost wrote, I almost sent you an email a couple days ago saying you should watch Starman before we do this episode. But, um, that's because I knew and, I was going to bring it up. And um, Stranger in a Strange Land could certainly have had a romantic comedy aspect, aspect to it. If, you know, Heinlein hadn't wanted to get on his uh, polyamory soapbox and had made Michael and Jilly more conventional romantic couple. Right. And so Starman does have, uh, Starman is a movie about an alien that comes to Earth and he has like three days on the planet and he has to go basically, he has to get to, he gets picked up in Arizona. So he goes on this road trip basically with Karen Allen, who from Raiders of the Lost Ark is the lead actor. And um, along the way, we get to the, the fish out of water, stranger in a strange land thing. But uh, I, you know, in a lot of ways, this first half of the book, I just kept thinking, like, man, Starman just nailed this. And I certainly think that there would have been an argument for people when they saw Starman to say, like, this is just Stranger in a Strange Land, kind of condensed and kind of thing. It doesn't have the polyamory or any of that stuff. It doesn't, it just, you know, but it, it does have a little bit of social commentary. But so for anybody out there who's listening, if you've never seen Starman, I highly recommend Starman. Um, it is, I think, an underrated film in Carpenter's uh, filmography. Um, and it was like, you know, an early studio film for him. And it was, and Jeff Bridges is amazing as the alien in it and, and was nominated for um, him and uh, Sigourney Weaver being nominated for Ripley. It's like one of the few times a science fiction um, actor got nominated for the big, for the big cheese. <laughs> um in that case. But anyway, so the first part of this book just reminded me a lot of Starman. And then once once um, uh, Michael Valentine Smith starts to grok human language, right? And then it kind of shifts. We have this whole kind of escape part of the storyline where Jill uh, helps him escape from the hospital where he's being taken, which was kind of a ridiculous scene, but whatever. Um... And then once once uh, Michael Valentine's out, you get more of the um, you start getting the other characters kind of involved in learning the Martian language and that whole kind of thing. I, I'm probably glossing over a lot of this, but um, but I think the important thing is in the second half of the book, the storyline turns to this whole thing of where where he goes from being the fish out of water, stranger in a strange land kind of thing, to being assured of himself and his position by teaching the Martian language to other people, he starts to influence culture, and, you know, it becomes this whole other thing. The whole Jungle Book thing is totally gone, because at this point, he's influencing human culture so much that they're starting their own religions, those kinds of things. That's when we find out that the Martians uh, blew up a fifth planet. That was interesting part of the storyline and then in the end we uh i'm just gonna shoot ahead michael dies 
Mm-hmm. We had this whole... St- Michael is essentially crucified like Jesus Christ or Joseph Smith. Right. And almost seems like he wills that because he's seen that martyrdom is a great way to found your religion. Right. And here's and also because Martians don't really die. Right. Um, and they, they feed parts of themselves to people and then they live on in some kind of like psychic reverberation. Is that, am I remembering? The old ones that they're basically just pure energy at that point. Right. That they can still communicate with the living and, you know, talk to them and give them directions, but they are simply no longer corporeal, which is why, uh, Michael uses the word discorporate instead of die. Right. And there's marvelous, you know, one of those marvelous little bits in the book where, uh, as part of his voluminous reading of everything published on Earth to learn our culture, he reads Romeo and Juliet, and he has a sense of joy that Romeo discorporates. Right. And then he reads on and realizes it's supposed to be a tragedy because Romeo discorporated too soon. Right. Well, and here's the thing. I like the whole... Uh, everything with the Martian culture and the old ones I found very interesting. Everything with the humans in this book, I found annoying as shit. <laughs> right? Because the humans, whenever Highland's writing humans in this book, I find, I find them distasteful and I don't find the ideas presented to be interesting because I think it's what you've said before. It's a lot of Highland on his soapbox about polyamory. And, you know, I don't know if he was trying to get Virginia to start swinging or whatever. And like, you know, yeah, I know first... I had that feeling as well. It's like, you know, a, a book that so, you know, blatantly, uh, advertises for, you know, multi-partner sexuality, you know, what was his relationship like? Right. And was he, you know, what was it? Look, and I, you know, not to judge because, you <laughs> yeah. know, if that's your thing, you know, <laughs> and did fine. Virginia go along with this or did she say, Honey, save it for your books. <laughs> right. Like, keep it, keep it in the pages. <laughs> keep it in the pages, Bob. Um, well, and so here's the thing. I really like the, the science fictional aspects of this book <laughs> on each end. And there's the beginning and the end. I like all of that. I like all those elements. But I think overall, the, all the times that he's on his soapbox and all the human characters, which and if you get down, if, if, you know, I have in my notes, I have a list of all the, the characters, right? So, um, I mean, we've got Michael Valentine, we got Jill Boardman, Bill Caxton, Jubal, right? Who we know is like the big stand-in. He's the, the writer and lawyer guy, right? Yeah. And he's the big stand-in for, for Heinlein, um... You have Anne, Duke, Larry, let's go through all these names, Joseph Douglas, Alice Douglas. You have the Fosterites, you have that weird religion that's kind of like this post-World War III religion, right? Mm-hmm. You have all these people, all these humans, they all suck. Like, they're all terrible characters to me, None of them, they're all cardboard. Michael Valentine is an interesting character, but mostly because of the setting and where he comes from. But he too, like, once he gets, you know, like... Uh, we're going to share water. He's pretty self-important, indulgent fucking dude anyways, because, you know, like, why is he think so highly of himself that he wants to start a religion? That makes me curious about that guy. So in the end, like, all the characters are, like, kind of unappealing to me. And I like a lot of the ideas, but I think overall, I mostly was not digging this book. Um, I, I'm glad I read it. I'm glad... 
like I would that this was something that I experienced beyond the fact that it was a part of the series, but um, you know, it's like you know, with most of the dick books, like there's just so many cool ideas and things that that they carry me on, even if the characters aren't aren't the best all the time and have names like Ragglegum and shit like that. Um, <laughs> time out of joint, but just something wasn't hooking with me. Now, how, I don't, I don't like. We can start to get into overall feelings, like, like, how did this story work for you, Mark, as the first time reading it? Well, you know, a friend of mine had told me a few years ago that he thought that the first half of Stranger in a Strange Land was absolutely beautiful, and the second half was just silly. And okay. I suspect where it got silly for him was where it got silly for me, which is when Michael and Jill leave Jubal's compound and go off on their road trip and end up performing the circus. And that is some fucking wacky shit right there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, you know, kind of ironic that, you know, Heinlein's going for this irony of, you know, they're presenting themselves as stage magicians and they're really magic. Right. Yeah, you know, Michael is really levitating Jill, and everybody thinks, "Oh, it's just an illusion." Thurston did this. Uh, that was that was clever. No, and what's the logic there? Like, so he hangs out for twenty years with these non-corporeal beings, so they teach him how to do all this stuff. Is that I? I never really got a full understanding of because he shared water with them. I mean, get, or, you know, like, going back to the ending, or where Hunland says that. Actually, he's not an Earthling at all. He's really a Martian in Earth Earth Four, as are yeah. Foster and Digby from right. the Fosterite cult, right? And that they're you know the advance guard of a Martian invasion, spying on Earth and collecting information to see whether the Martians should let us live or destroy Planet Three the way they destroyed Planet Five. Yeah, and they destroyed it pretty good because they turned it into an asteroid belt. Um, which forget the science of that for a minute because. It's the wackadoo sixties sci-fi. I'm, yeah. I'll go with it. <laughs> I have never, so, I've never been one to judge science fiction by its science, right? As well, long as a, it's, as long a, as it's vaguely plausible, I don't, you know, it doesn't really bother me if you know this is really impossible. Well, I thought it was funny that a lot of writers. This is Highland wasn't the first one to say like, I bet the asteroid belt was a planet that got blown up, and um, that science doesn't work. <laughs> Yeah, there, was, all, there were serious astronomers at one point who did believe that. So. Right, but there were serious astronomers who thought lots of weird and wacky shit um, uh, in the past. <laughs> um, Andromeda was, or the Andromeda galaxy, I don't know how many different things people thought it was before they realized it was another galaxy, but I'm nerd digressing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, yeah, I, I think the those wacky parts where it got silly with the circus and the magic thing and the telekinesis is like I think if he had kind of dialed some of that back it might have worked for me a little bit better too but um I wouldn't so wouldn't just say that the beginning is really beautiful and I just say I think they're the majority of the middle <laughs> mm-hmm. is is where I think there are cool elements towards the end although truth be told I'm going to out myself here. The ending was so fuzzy in my head that I went back and reread the Wikipedia <laughs> summary of the plot before we started recording just to make sure I remembered it correctly in the end, because towards the end, I was really ready for this book to be over. I think that's a major problem with it, that uh, 
you know, it's the kind of trick ending that O. Henry could make work in a short story, but, mm-hmm. you know, a 525 page novel, you want it to end in a way that's consistent with everything that's gone before, not have the writer tap you in the shoulder saying, Oh, I've just been kidding you for 524 pages. The Martians are really SOBs. Right. Yeah. We, yeah, you know, they've been hiding here all along and they, they've just been looking out for us. And, and so I guess we get the idea that this, that, uh, Michael Valentine creating this religion is what partially what saves us from the Martians. Um, and, you know, I guess that's kind of interesting, but I, I liked your thoughts where you're saying you could see a version where there's a Starship Troopers response to, like, we've got to organize against Mars. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you could definitely see that. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. I, I And I will say that for many years, Heinlein, this was considered his classic and whatever. He didn't milk it with a sequel or do any of that, which he probably really easily could have done. And I'm surprised he never did. But... Um, well, maybe he felt the way uh, Margaret Mitchell did when she was asked to do a sequel to Go In With The Wind. She said, I have nothing more to say about those people. Yeah. Well, he probably didn't. <laughs> but, uh... You know, it, it, fuck, the thing about this book is that it was really hard for me, and maybe because I don't, I don't forgive Robert Heinlein for any of his ideas, but it was really hard for me to ignore the hypocrisy and the things that I saw in the way Heinlein presented a lot of these ideas. Like, it's free love, but, you know, two men together, now that's gross, you know, and there's definitely lines in there where... Yeah, it's hard, like, to, it's hard to believe that you could have a polyamorous cult that was exclusively heterosexual. Exactly. And it's nice to hear that someone who isn't gay was as bothered by that aspect of the book as I was. Well, yeah, no, that I couldn't ignore that, and I couldn't ignore the the line the, the line in there about rape and, and those things in there. This really bothered me. Although he does and, also say that, uh, you know, once you become adept in... Uh, Michael's religion and the Martian culture, uh, a woman who is genuinely sexually assaulted can simply make the assaulter disappear. Right. And which, you know, hey, I'm all for making them disappear. <laughs> However, uh, that doesn't, that doesn't make it like, oh, it's no big deal, right? And I think that's kind of somewhat of the attitude that was presented there. There's lots of really, cringy yeah, moments I mean, in this book. Yeah, before we uh, go on that one, one of the things that uh, I noted uh, was that in a lot of ways, the book's sexual attitudes are very much out of date. Yeah. That, uh, you know, this was a book that, as I was saying earlier, was seized on by the hippies mm-hmm. as, you know, what they were aiming for, you know, a world where anybody could have sex with anybody else and nobody considered it a big deal. Uh, which made me wonder, you know, how did they avoid unwanted pregnancies or STDs, which uh, Heinlein explains towards the end by saying, oh, well, you know, once they learn the Martian discipline, they can just wish all that stuff away. Right. And uh, Which is really nice <laughs> and sounds really great, but it's very unrealistic and dangerous. It's not how the real world works. Yeah, it's a dangerous yeah. idea, too. I would, hope, like, you know, I would hope that the real-life version of the Church of All Worlds at least, you know, makes condoms available to its members. Well, maybe there's an AIDS-era sequel to Stranger <laughs> in a Strange Land. Um, you know, if you're ever in touch with Norman Spinrad, you can ask him to write it. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, well, and 
God, you know, and so that was just the thing that was so hard for me. So, so let's look at the books that were also nominated in this yeah, year. Like, because... I, I still want to stay on that topic for oh, a moment. Okay, because, yeah, go ahead. Um, you know, in a large part, the uh, whole second wave feminist movement was not only a rejection, a reaction to the roles women had been forced into by the mainstream culture, but also the way women were treated in the hippie culture, the fact that they were expected to have sex with any man who asked them, that it was considered, quote, uncool, unquote, which was the ultimate insult in the hippie world mm -hmm. uh, for a woman to say no to a man. And, uh, you know, since then, the you know whole thing has swung the other way. It's occurred to me that in the 1970s, uh, you had the so-called human potential movement. You had people saying, you know, people need to drop their defenses and just hug each other more. And that, you know, and now people are horrified by that. And, you know, uh, you've got the Me Too movement saying, you know, well, people's personal spaces need to be protected. And I, you know, I have this fear that we're going in the other way and everybody's just getting very closed in and very fearful of any kind of contact, even, you know, even uh, verbal uh, cues that, you know, men are reporting that, you uh, they feel scared to compliment a woman on her appearance because she'll accuse them of sexually harassing her just by making that comment. And, you know, it's like, you know, this novel reflects someone who went way overboard in one direction of that of, you know, everybody ought to be available to everybody else. And now we're going whole hog in the other direction. And even people who consider themselves politically progressive are adopting this very you know, anti-sexual attitude that takes, you know, uh, uh, needed protections that women should have, you know, from being harassed in the workplace, being, you know, uh, you know, being made to uh, be uh, afraid of rape and just, you know, is going off in this other direction of a kind of neo-Puritanism. Mm -hmm. So it's a very odd book to read in the current social climate, which is really moving away from uh, the ideas that Heinlein was advancing that became... Uh, quite popular later in the 60s. Well, and I think that's going to be the most interesting thing to take away from reading Stranger in a Strange Land in 2019, because here's the thing. We both read it this year, right? And it was you for the first time, and me essentially for the first time, because I think I read it when I was too young to really like understand what I was reading. So I'd read it before, but Basically, I read it for the first time in 2019. So we can't read this in the context. We can th try to think about how it would have been read in the 60s, right? We can think about that. But we're reading it now. So we we are reading it in the context of this. And, and I think, you know, I think that's why we always try to do the thing of trying to remind people, like, what happened in the year that this was written. Because I do think it's important to think about, like, the context in which you know, and I will give some leeway to a book, um, you know, but then there's, there's a degree that, you know, like I'll give leeway to, to Lovecraft, for example, on certain things. But at the same time, when he uses the N word to name his cat, it's, it's like, no, dude, like I can't, I'm not going to totally ignore that. Right. And there's a lot of things in Stranger in the Strange Land that I just like don't feel like I want to ignore because if I'm thinking about it now it just doesn't hold up in a lot of ways and we got it and that's the thing is that we look at certain books like for example take Man in the High Castle which won the award the next year right the one the Hugo the next year that book holds up 
right? There's nothing in it that's cringy for me. I mean, well, there's a little bit, some, some, maybe a little bit of the Japanese stuff, but for the most part, it holds up. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, even though I don't, I disagree with Starship Troopers, you know, this funny thing is that there's still a lot of good stuff in, like, how the women are portrayed in that book. And here's the book that he puts out a year later that that undoes what little positive things he did with with that. So, I mean, you mentioned you, know, you mentioned Lovecraft. The nice thing about Lovecraft is that by the end of his life, he had grown out of a lot of the racism that uh, is bothersome in his earlier works. That you know, mm-hmm. the you know that in his very last story, the Italians of Federal Hill, whom he had hated for years, mm-hmm. emerge on the side of good. Yeah, I yeah I know he came around a lot, a lot of that, but I'm not sure the Heinlein did. But but you know I'm not a Heinlein expert. I'm a Dick expert, so <laughs> you know I'll stick with Dick, right? On that, and then um, I'll stick with Dick says a straight man to a gay man, right? Well, listen, we got to do the Dick puns when all the time on this podcast. I'll stick with Bruner as well. Here's a guy now. Look, and, and late, a couple of years later, Stan on Zanzibar comes out, and John Bruner nails so much of our future in that book. It's scary. And, there, you know, there's a little bit of cringy stuff in there, but for the most part, man, that book really holds up. And, like, you're talking about Stan on Zanzibar. You got a book that, that pre in 1969 nails mass shootings in America. You know, like, what a random thing to predict perfectly. Right. And so it's funny because you look at you look at this book and and there's a lot of really cool science fictional ideas, but there's, you know, like there's nothing like that here, too, that I feel like Heinlein like super nailed, like even the way the free love movement happened a couple years later. Yeah, maybe he got some of that right. But that, that stuff's not even like really like valid or kind of like the way people think anymore. I mean, the free love is, happens in different ways in this day and age with swipe left, swipe right uh, on on phone screens. And um, so you got all kinds of weird things with that. But I don't know. Any, any other thoughts on, like, the political stuff in this book? Like, um, I guess I'm a little disappointed that uh, you read the shorter version and had some of the same... Uh, criticisms that I had of the longer version that you know, <laughs> they were still I was there. Hoping, yeah, that I was hoping, I was hoping that he had you know cut that down to the bone in the no. uh, editing process. And, well, he may have cut it down to the bone, but it's still there. You know, he still and, gets on his soapbox a lot. Yeah, and you know, like, look, I I've got plenty of dog-eared pages where you know he's talking about a lot of that stuff, and you know, there was one time when I was 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 looking to, to edit this out and I was going to pull out some of those quotes and I was going to do that, but you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, I just, I almost think that this book doesn't deserve that level of scrutiny to, to, to a degree. I mean, like, I think it's good to talk about it and think about the issues and yes, is whether I consider it, you know, like, look, I'm, you know, me personally, I'm only going to give this book, uh, three corporeal old ones out of five, right? Um, non-corporeal old ones out of five. Um, I know it's a masterpiece. Considered one. 
And I think it is valid as a masterwork of science fiction that it, you know, 60 years later, it doesn't hold up super well for me. But I understand its position in the genre. And I'm going to give it that respect. And that's why it got three out of five for me, because otherwise I probably would have given it two. Because I looked up uh, Heinlein's Wikipedia page and saw the author was saying, you know, that Heinlein was one of the three greatest science fiction writers of the 20th century, along with Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. And, of course, my first reaction to that was, weren't there a couple guys in there named Bradbury and Vonnegut who deserve at least that degree of recognition? Yeah, I don't even know if you could say, I don't even know if you could nail it down to three. And I would argue that Ursula Gwynn's better than, than than them, you know. And like, since they say instead of just naming three dudes, three white dudes, but you know, and you know. you know, I couldn't help. In some ways, I couldn't help but uh, think of uh, Stranger in a Strange Land and mentally compare it to Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, which I had also recently reread. And uh, oh, interesting, because I haven't read that because I think uh, you know. I mean, in a way, Bradbury uh, is to Heinlein what F. Scott Fitzgerald was to Ernest Hemingway, that Fitzgerald and Bradbury both had this knack of being able to write prose that hovered on the thin edge of poetry, and that's what I love about both of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Heinlein, like Hemingway, was, you know, you know a ragbag of certain prejudices. Uh, an English teacher I had in junior college said that uh, Hemingway lived life from the waist down, I think one could make that case for Heinlein as well, certainly the Heinlein of this book. And, uh. Oh, yeah, he was definitely. He has a a very good, strong, clear writing style, but also he just gets into so many thickets of his own social and political prejudices. And, you know, there were a lot of parts, there were a lot of parts where I thought, you know, get off the soapbox and get on with the story. Yeah. And he was also. He is also not really an attentive world builder. I know, you know, that there are reasons he decided to make the Martians as shady as they are, but, you know, he does not give us Valentine Michael Smith's big sermon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does not give us any more than one word of the Martian language. That's true. Which, uh, you know, I compared to J.R.R. Tolkien's elaborate uh, working out of languages for his alien creatures because he really wanted to make sure, even if it didn't end up that much in the books, that he knew how the alien races talk to each other. Which is kind of a stupid thing that, you know, he's really obsessed with using this one Martian word. Yeah. <laughs> but none of the other Martian words, like he's yeah. got to say grok, you yeah. know, yeah. all the time. Which, you know, which um, in the context simply means understand. Right. And which is, yeah. And he's, say, he's saying that Martian has a whole different value system and a whole different thought pattern built into it, but he doesn't have enough confidence in himself as a writer to put that down on paper. Right. So I guess, yeah, there were world-building things that I did like, but you know what? You're right. You're right, Mark. <laughs> the world-building is shit here, isn't it? <laughs> Comparatively, you know. Well, I mean, for a guy who's really... And his world-building in um, Starship Troopers was great. But it was easier stuff to do because it was just like a space opera. It was just like, you know, he was he was telling a, a submarine or a, a or an infantry story set in science fiction. So that's that's easier to do than invent a whole culture and all that. So I guess you could say on, on a science fiction level that he was being pretty lazy about that. So let's let's look at the books he was up against. 
Um, oh wait, did you want to give your rating first? Um, uh, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, you know, uh, because it's it's hard to separate its historical importance from how it comes off now. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier, some of the social attitudes that were considered very avant-garde and risky then have become severely dated. Right. Well, and I think that's why, I mean, I just, I gave it a bonus star for its classic status, but I mean, honestly, if I'm being honest, it's a two-star book for me. Really. Okay. But really, I'm going to give it another star because I know it's important to the, to the genre. Now, why did it win the Hugo? Well, let's see what it was up against. Um, Dark Universe by Daniel F. And then it's spelled G-A-L-O-U-Y-E. Galloway or Galloway. something like that. Yeah, you know me and names. Um, Sense of Obligation by Harry Harrison with the alternate title Planet of the Damned. And... The Fisherman, alternate title, Time is the Simplest Thing, by Clifford Samack. And second ending by James White. So the only one of these other ones that I've read is Time is the Simplest Thing, by Clifford Samack. And that is not one of my favorite Samack books. Um, But, you know, it's not really strong competition here. Um, I haven't heard most of these. Well, I mean, what do I know? Because I haven't read any of the other <laughs> ones. But there's not one that I'm like, oh shit, that was a classic. That should have won, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm, um, you know, I'm familiar with Harry Harrison only from having met him in 1972, right after his novel "Make Room, Make Room" about overpopulation was filmed at Soil as Soylent Green. Green. Yep. And the one thing Harry Harrison wanted to talk about was how pissed off he was at the ending. Of Soylent Green, that you know, right. you know, it's not people in his book, right? Sorry to disappoint you all. <laughs> it was Soylent Green was not people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I haven't read Make Room, Make Room. I need to. I know um, right around this, I think the year before, Harrison was also nominated for Death World, and Death World is really cool, weird little pulpy sci-fi book. Um, he was nominated a lot. So he was a big name there, but I mean, I think this, I think this is one like, um, the, you know, those years when you watch the Oscars and everybody knows what's going to win, like from the beginning, I think everybody knew Stranger and Stranger and was going to win. It was the first New York Times bestseller science fiction novel. I don't know if it, if that had happened at that point, but. And it was um, obviously accomplishing what Heinlein had set out for it as. You know, the book that would establish him as a serious writer with literary credentials and not just a genre guy. Well, you know, because it wasn't science fiction. It was a, um, hold on. <laughs> I gotta pull up my notes. It was a social political satire of sex and religion and contemporary culture, not science fiction. Um, <laughs> so it's funny because my copy says the most famous science fiction novel ever written, right on the cover. It does not say the most famous socio-political satire of sex and religion and contemporary culture ever written. But, I think that would have more competition than <laughs> right. I don't know what's another um, socio-political satire of sex and religion that we can think of. Like there's a bunch, I suppose. But yeah, once again, um, you could go back to Gulliver's Travels on that. True, you could go back to that. Um, yeah, so. As far as the Hugo winner goes, yeah, it's place is cemented in history, and it and it's an important book, and yada yada yada. But 
at the same time, like, fuck. Man, I had a hard time finishing this one. Um, I wasn't super into it. Um, but then again, at the end, it kind of redeemed itself because I did really like... I did like the ending. It was more of a short story ending. It was a ha You know, like, look at that. Um, he martyred himself, you know. But at the same time, I am glad I read it overall. Overall, I'm glad I read it. And um, I think it's important for this series that we... We, you know, we really, I think we're putting context to the era of which, you know, Philip K. Dick was doing his most important work, like what the state of the art was in science fiction. And, and especially if you figure it, and that's the thing is like, uh, we just recorded recently, I don't know the order these are going to come out in, but the 1965 winner, The Wanderers by Fritz Lieber, which was hot dog shit and uh you know that book was was terrible and when you consider that you know you've got stranger in a strange land starship troopers man in the high castle back to back way station clifford samack which somehow beat cat's cradle <laughs> by her vonnegut um not to talk shit on samack i love clifford samack i think city is one of the best science fiction novels of the 50s but uh at the same time, like, there's some really good shit here in the early part of the 60s, and then How the Fucking Wanderer by Fritz Lieber won, I, I'll never know. But um, but this one, I can understand why it won. So, any final thoughts on uh, Stranger in a Strange Land here? I think we've uh, pretty much uh, dissected the corpse after the discorporation. <laughs> right. Um, I... I are you going to read more Heinlein novels? I mean, I have to read uh, Moon is a Harsh Mistress for, for, for this podcast. But uh, I picked that one up at the same time, and it, you know, it would be oh. interesting. Apparently, that goes you know even more into his politics, although... Mm-hmm. No, that's yeah, supposed to be The Libertarian with a capital giant fucking L yeah. on it. I like, mean, certainly, certainly, you know, the... You know, Heinlein and Ayn Rand have that one thing in common, that they both... Uh, were quite clear that if two adults wanted to have sex with each other, it was nobody else's business, not the government's, not religions, and not anybody else they might be married to. Which was a big fucking deal at the time, right? You know, <laughs> the 1961, that's a big deal uh, for, for you know, this. that's how many years? That's like eight years before Stonewall, right? And, so. and Stranger in a Strange Land was published four years after Atlas Shrugged. Right. For better or for worse. For better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, I, I must say I have a great affection for Ayn Rand's novels because they are such beautiful bad books. They're so, you know, reading them is like watching an Ed Wood movie, or at least what an Ed Wood movie would have been if he'd had an enormous budget. Well, here's the problem. An Ed Wood movie only takes two hours. Reading an Ayn Rand novel takes fucking long time. So that's my problem. The difference. I'll watch a bad movie and crack up, but it's really hard with bad books. Well, she had me glued to the page just because it was so outrageous, and I'm thinking, you know, my God, there are so many people out there who take this shit seriously. Well, let me tell you, Mark, as somebody who writes uh, book reviews for my blog of different horror books, I get horror books in the mail from random self-published authors, and I one time got a Vampire Hunter from from Nova Scotia novel. It was a cowboy samurai vampire hunter from nova scotia novel and let me tell you that would make a fucking hilarious movie but when you have to sit down and read 
300 pages of it. That's how I feel about Anne Rind, you know, <laughs> or, or, or reading those books. Like, I, I just can't devote that much time to fucking garbage. Um, unless I have a podcast to do about it. But don't anyone <laughs> challenge us to that. It will not happen. That one I will put my fucking foot down. I will not do that. Um, all right, so uh, well, we could we could do one on Anthem, which is relatively short, and which he said was the best capsule version of her philosophy. Oh fuck, Mark! No, no, <laughs> this is not. What would be the Rind and Rind podcast? Uh, Rinders and Rinders. I don't know. Fuck, no, uh, not doing yeah. it. it. Not was, doing it. it. It was yeah. Her name was pronounced Ayn Rand, but I'll take I'll take Rind as your critical Rind. comment on her. Well, sure. God, no, not doing that podcast. Not doing that. And, and and sorry, no, no. It would be funny if because our our listeners are pretty silent. Don't make a lot of comments. And it'd be funny if this is the fucking thing that gets everybody out there. Yeah, do that fucking podcast. No, ain't happening. Not happening. All right. Uh, I don't know what's up next in the Hugo series because we're recording them out of order. So. I have no idea what to tell you to look forward to, but uh, if you made it this far in Stranger in a Strange Land, thanks for listening, and we'll uh, uh, we'll be doing one more Heinleiners with Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and since I know Mark got a copy of it, I'm I'm sure he'll be back for it. So uh, thanks a lot for listening. Keep it paranoid. <laughs> Stay paranoid. <laughs>